0: This is the Austin Life Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at AustinLifeChurch.com. Good evening, Austin Life Church. Good to be back with you guys for a second week. Uh, My name is Stephen Crawford. If I haven't met you, I am uh, one of the pastors at the Austin Stone Community Church, St. John Congregation, and uh, it's good to be back for for part two of the series we started last week. I'm here with my wonderful wife, Taylor, in the front row and my rowdy son, Knox. I'm sure you'll hear from him throughout the sermon, Uh, so uh, just hang with us tonight. Uh, Tonight, we are jumping into part two. Of what we started last week and we're looking at this hugely important theme in the the Christian life of spiritual maturity. And we said last week if you remember that after you being born again, after you being converted to Christ as a Christian, God's greatest concern for your life is that you would mature spiritually. My greatest concern for my son is that he would mature, that he would grow up. Like, Like any good and loving father, God is committed to making sure that his kids grow up and mature. And so I simply defined spiritual maturity, if you remember, uh, as God's work in ours. God's work in our work. And so if spiritual maturity is in fact God's work in ours, then that means that our spiritual maturity requires two people to be working simultaneously, and that is God and you. God is working ultimately and decisively in you to bring about your maturity, but the scripture is very clear on this. We are also working to mature. That's what we do. Only our work is not decisive, you see. Our work is dependent. Our our work and our discipline and our obedience as Christians sets the stage For how God our Father transfers His character over to you, this is what we're going to be looking at a little bit more tonight. Now, growing up as a kid, my dad—I had a—I had a great father. Uh, I don't know if you did. If this is your experience growing up, I had a really great father growing up in my home. I know a lot of people can't claim that blessing. Uh, I certainly didn't deserve it, Uh, but that was the the father I was given. Uh, And my dad was was a great father mainly because. Uh, he served as a constant example to me that I, that I sort of always, always had before me of things like hard work and integrity and servanthood and faithfulness, things like this. And because of that example, I've been able to take on now some of those qualities. As an adult, I've sort of caught them from him as his kid. But you want to know another reason why he was such a good father to me? He made me do things. He gave me tasks. He gave me commandments. He gave me disciplines around the house. Things like mowing and raking the lawn, taking the trash out, cleaning out gutters, sweeping the driveway. And, and, and though at the time growing up, of course, as a kid, those things seemed like meaningless tasks to me. But as I look back on my life now, I see that it was precisely in doing those things faithfully throughout my life that all of those great qualities of my dad were actually transferred over to me, you see, my dad was the source of all those things. he was who I got the qualities from ultimately, but the tasks you see that he gave me, they kind of set the stage for how I learned and acquired and caught these things from him. And he gave me this ta- these tasks for one reason only. I'm his kid. So he wasn't giving the kid down the street things to do around the house. That'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? Uh, he gave me these things to do as his kid, and my brother these things to do as, as his kids. And, and so this, was, this is how I began to take up maturity and catch these qualities from him as I grew up. This is sort of the dynamic that Scripture seems to show us, is the process of our own spiritual maturity. God, our Father, is the decisive actor and the source of your spiritual maturity. Without him bringing us bringing you into his family by his grace, into his household to be around him, we would never grow up or change. But, thank God, he, he transfers his character and he transfers his godliness over to us through the actions that we take in faith as we take small steps in life obeying him. That's the Christian life in a nutshell, isn't it? And, we're, and so we're going to be digging into this a little more Tonight, as we dig into the scripture a little bit. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is where we're going to be. As we saw last week, we're we're back in Hebrews chapter 5 again, but as we saw last week, as we were digging into this section of scripture, the writer of Hebrews is 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 preaching a sermon here. This is actually a Hebrews this is a sermon manuscript, and he's he's Uh, pulling away from his normal exposition of Christ uh, being seen and witnessed in the Old Testament. He pulls away from his normal exposition in his sermon, and he kind of addresses this issue of spiritual maturity in his hearers. And so we pick it up there, as we saw last week, in verse 11. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, if you want to follow along with me there. He says, "'About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing.'" For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So last week, this is a section of scripture we looked at last week. If you remember, we saw how the writer of Hebrews here is sort of diagnosing spiritual immaturity in his hearers, right? And we saw that living in this kind of persistent state of spiritual immaturity is perilous both to your joy and to the people around you, right? And so he's going to continue now in verse 14. And now watch watch how he defines here and describes what spiritual maturity looks like here in verse 14, okay? Watch this with me. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I'm going to read that again. But solid food is for the mature, comma, apposition. He's going to describe here what he means by that. For those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now here's where we're going tonight. What do we actually mean by spiritual maturity? (laughs) Haven't really gotten into that yet. And what is God actually giving you? What is, what, is, what, is, what is God giving to you, granting to you in your spiritual maturity, and how do we get there? What, what, are, what is the work that we do as his children? So those are the, really the two questions we're gonna be answering tonight. What does spiritual maturity actually look like, and how do we get there, okay? So, first question, what does spiritual maturity actually look like? So we see it right there in verse 14, don't we? He says very simply, having powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. So powers of discernment in distinguishing good from evil. So that's what God is actually granting to you as we mature spiritually. He's giving you powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil in this life. Now, what does that mean, right? Well, it means that you've spent enough time with God in your life. You've you've spent time loving him and knowing him and worshiping and pouring over who he is and his word, his character, his truth, understanding his ways. And you've spent enough time in that that now you're, you're actually able to, to make distinctions in this world as you go through life. This is what always happens, right, whenever we're fixated onto something for enough time. We grow in our ability to make distinctions because as we spend time focused on something, things begin to get clearer to us, right? Lines and distinctions that we didn't see before all of a sudden become very clear and very obvious to us. Uh, When I was in college at UT here, I took a class called Jazz Appreciation. And if you're in college, if you're at UT, I would very much so recommend this class to you. If you need a fine arts credit, that was my situation, needed a fine arts credit, took jazz appreciation. What what could go wrong, right? Uh, Now, going into this class, I knew almost nothing about jazz, right? I could go into a room where music was playing and tell you, yes, that's jazz, or no, that's not jazz. That was the extent of my knowledge of jazz music. And over the course of that semester, obviously, I was learning a lot about jazz, learning about history of jazz, the different styles and eras and artists and instrumentation and rhythm and all these things. But our professor was having us listen to a lot of jazz, as you would imagine, right? And, and we listened to a lot of jazz. I mean, we listened to different jazz songs throughout each class lecture, and he was pointing things out to us as we were just sitting and listening to the music. I had to listen to a lot of jazz songs just at home to do assignments. I had to write about them. Sometimes I'd even have to sit and listen to whole jazz albums in one sitting, just sit and listen to a whole album just to write a paper or something. Jazz was filling my ears that semester. I became consumed with it. And now, because of that one semester in my life, whenever I hear jazz music, I am now able to discern distinctions in jazz music like I never could before. I'm able to distinguish bebop jazz from big band jazz. I'm able to distinguish West Coast jazz from East Coast jazz from Dixie jazz, okay? I'm able to distinguish Charlie Parker from Miles Davis, and I'm now able to say with complete authority and confidence that absolutely under no circumstances should anyone ever listen to Kenny G, ever. It's not jazz, and it's not even music, I'm convinced. For most people, jazz just sounds like noise, okay? For most people, and for me it used to, if I'm honest. But Becoming fixated with with jazz and, and being consumed with listening to jazz music over a period of time, it brought me to a place now where all of a sudden I now have powers of discernment that I didn't have before to make distinctions about jazz music as I'm listening to it. Christian, when God removes the veil from your eyes and he allows you to look and behold the glory of Christ, That's salvation, by the way. That's conversion. That's you being born again. When that happens, that immediately begins a process where we immediately begin to grow now in our ability to discern and distinguish good from evil, godliness from ungodliness, wisdom from foolishness. This is what's happening in our maturity, right? Through having our eyes opened by God himself, and it is God's work, we gain powers of discernment to distinguish Good from evil in this life and in our life. Now, how is that? By having our gaze set and having our hearts and our eyes turned to Jesus now in our life and beholding Him in all of His glory and, and now away from all the glitz and the shiny things in this world that used to bring us joy... That's how that happens. That's what happens in conversion. Our hearts get turned away from sin and away from all the shiny objects in this world that we see. That's being born again to see and love the glory of Christ. And that's God's decisive work. Now, what kind of discernment is he talking about here in Hebrews 5? Let's just get a little more practical with this. What kinds of distinctions are the mature able to make now with their powers of discernment that they've gained through God opening their eyes? And he says very simple terms, good from evil, Just kind of just big categories that he gives us there, good and evil. But we can, I think, drill in a little further into that and, and tease that out a little bit. So if the mature are those who can distinguish good from evil, then, then that means at least three things, right? If we just kind of think about this for a minute. It means, number one, that the mature are able to distinguish good theology from bad theology. The mature are able to distinguish Good theology from bad theology. So in other words, what we most fundamentally believe about God and, and his gospel begins to get refined a little bit and solidified and clarified as we fix our eyes on Christ and continue to behold his glory. So as we look upon Christ, we, we behold his beauty, we love his glory, we love the truth that he gives us in his word, we begin to be able to make now distinctions that we couldn't make before between theology that accurately portrays and explains our God and our Christ and theology that misrepresents and twists and distorts Him in the world. And this comes from, obviously, an obsessive fixation on how God has revealed Himself to us in His one and only Word, the Scriptures. So this means that the the mature are able to see through all the messages and statements that are sort of coming at us from the culture as being inherently theological at their root and their foundation. They're theological statements about God. They're not just people sort of expressing their, their opinions or their values at random. So for example, when people say things like, well, I mean, if two men and two women love each other, why shouldn't we celebrate that as a marriage, right? I mean, God is love, right? Why, why wouldn't two people expressing their love and committing themselves to one another through marriage be just something we celebrate as Christians? Well, a discerning person uh, hears that, and immediately their, their spidey senses start to tingle a little bit, right? Because they know that, yes, of course God is love. It's in the Bible. But if God is God, then that means that he alone gets to define love and what marriage actually means. And what we find in his word is that he most certainly does that. Distinctions, you see. Good theology, bad theology. Or here's another one that I think probably all of us secretly believe and hold to, including me. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Now, that's a powerful sentiment that I think a lot of us probably believe. And because of that belief, we're tempted to justify all sorts of things in our life, right? do these things, buy these things, hang out with these people, date these people, drink these things. We justify all sorts of things. Now, is that sentiment entirely wrong? Well, yes and no. Yes and no, right? Now, God is passionate about your joy. We know this. Yes, of course. He loves to bless his children. He loves that. But he want, what he wants for you more than anything is that you would find your greatest joy, your greatest blessing, and serving and loving and obeying him in holiness, not in the pursuits and the things of this world. Distinctions, you see, mature can make distinctions between good theology and bad theology, both in the messages that they're kind of hearing and receiving out there, and in their own thinking, they're able to kind of distinguish those things. The second thing that this means is that the mature are able to distinguish self-control in the spirit from being ruled by your emotions. The, the mature are able to distinguish self-control in the spirit from being ruled by your emotions. So, When Christ and his glory become more and more weighty and significant in your life, your emotions no longer rule you moment by moment, right? You love the rule and reign of Christ in your life through his Holy Spirit that he's given you, and you see the destruction and the havoc that giving yourself over constantly to your feelings can cause. When someone angers you, you aren't ruled now by that anger. When when, when your feelings get hurt, Hurt, you aren't ruled and dictated now by the, the offense and the wound and the hurt. You're not constantly being triggered like a victim to give in to every emotional impulse that sort of comes at you from the world. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that you just stoically stuff and dismiss your feelings and act like they aren't there, right? That's not what we're talking about. Quite the contrary, actually. It means that you're, you're actually able now to notice What feelings are kind of creeping in and rising up in you, and you're able to capture them, grab a hold of them, and hold them in their proper place. It means that you, in the moment, have the discernment and the self-control to not let your feelings dictate your responses and your behaviors and your actions. And you distinguish self-control in the spirit from being reactive and ruled by your emotions. Distinctions, right? The third thing that this means is that the mature are able to distinguish wise decisions from unwise decisions. The mature are able to distinguish wise decisions from unwise decisions. So as we look to Christ, we take in all of his wisdom and all of his perfections, we we love and pursue him, we begin to be able to discern wise courses of action Versus unwise courses of action. So a spiritually mature person recognizes that, yes, you have all kinds of freedom in Christ to do lots of different things in your life. You do. Freedom to participate in various things, freedom to watch various things, freedom to eat or drink various things, freedom to live in various places, freedom to marry whomever you desire, freedom to work in various careers. Yes. In other words, God is not writing a message in the clouds or or sort of just dropping an audible message to you over any of the thousands of decisions that we make over the course of our lives. Just think about them: whom to marry, where to work, where to live. These are all freedom issues, right? And so the spiritually mature person treasures Christ, sees him as glorious to the effect that these freedoms that we all have as Christians are now restricted, to that which makes Christ look most glorious in your life. So yes, you have the freedom to take this job. Yes, you have the freedom to move to that city or marry that person. But the spiritually mature person says in their discernment, yet though I have the freedom, I am going to restrict myself in this thing for the sake of my own flourishing in Christ. So because I know myself and because I know what God wants for my life ultimately, which is to make much of Christ in my life, I will do this thing and not these things, okay? A mature person feels the constraints of wisdom as they consider how to live their life. So that means very practically that, yes, you have the freedom to spend an evening alone at home with your girlfriend. But no, it may not be a wise course of action to take if you know that you can't keep your hands off of each other. Yes, you have the freedom to drink alcohol, but no, it may not be a wise decision for you to drink if it leads you or whoever you're with to drunkenness, debauchery, or addiction. Yes, you have the freedom to watch shows on Netflix, but no, for the sake of honoring Christ and guarding your heart and your eyes and your time and your schedule, it may not be a wise decision for you to watch certain shows or watch hours of shows on end. We do this, don't we? Yes, you have the freedom to take a job that has you working on Sundays or working in the evenings so that you have to miss out on worshiping with God's people or participating in a community group. But no, it probably is not a wise decision for you to take that job if you want Christ to remain at the center of your life. It takes great maturity in Christ and discernment to be able to restrict yourself of freedoms like this. Distinctions. Discerning good from evil, good theology, bad theology, self-control, emotions. And so if that's, if that's what spiritual maturity looks like, if that's what we're actually talking about here, God granting us, as Hebrews says, powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil, the next obvious question we've got to ask is, okay, well, how, how do I get those? How do I grow in these things? How do we get there? Verse 14 again. And Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, very simply, we gain maturity, we grow in our spiritual powers of discernment to make these distinctions we're talking about by constant training and practice. That's what he says. It's the only words he gives us, right? Powers of discernment through constant training and practice. So you work, you strive, you labor in the basic practices of the Christian life for a long time to train for this and maybe not the answer you wanted tonight. Oh, you thought spiritual maturity was just gonna sort of drop into your lap. That's not how it works, sorry. That's not how it works, constant training and practice. God, our Father, gives us tasks, like my dad did. He's a good father. He gives us tasks, which he intends to graciously transfer his character over to us in these things. But just like I didn't become a man overnight, this constant training and practice is over years and decades, not weeks and months. We, we, we often overestimate what can happen in two years and us underestimate what can happen in 20. Now, if that's discouraging for you to hear, friend, let me just kind of take a step back from this and, and just remind you here for a second of the gospel. It's the good news that we believe here at Austin Life Church. By God's grace, Christian, he has made a way for you by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world to live a perfect life on your behalf and then to lay his life down in your place on the cross, dying the death that you deserved so that through Christ we might one day be glorified with him. We're going to be glorified together with Christ one day. You're going to be in a glorified body. You're going to have a renewed mind. You're going to have a pure heart. You will be fully mature in Christ. Paul says we're going to stand with Christ one day to judge angels. I don't know what that means, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to be judging angels together in glorified bodies In the gospel, what we learn is that God has made every provision for you, Christian, by his grace through Christ's work on the cross. It's his decisive work that he is working in you. He's given you Jesus, his blood. He's poured out his spirit in you. And what that means, Christian, very practically for you right now, is that every minute of your life, that you spend thinking about and striving and laboring and pressing forward and working toward that goal is not in vain. It's not wasted, not one ounce of it. It will eventually result in what God has made you to be in Christ, which is fully mature. And so, as the writer of Hebrews says here, that transformation and that maturity and those powers of discernment get realized in your life through constant training and practice. It's God's work in ours. It's God's decisive work of grace in our dependent work of faith. And so the rest of our time, I want to look at this incredible imagery that the Bible gives us to sort of explain what I'm talking about here, what, what Hebrews is talking about here, through the metaphor of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Flipping over there. And this is the Apostle Paul. And he's going to unpack in Galatians chapter 6 in a few verses. Uh, and explain here what I think has been for me probably one of the single most helpful concepts in my own spiritual maturity. And one that I think has been sorely missing or at least vastly overlooked in most of our discipleship in the modern church. And so it's this concept we we read about of sowing and reaping. So Galatians chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 7. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul here is using a very familiar concept to his, his readers. It's an agricultural society. He's talking about sowing and reaping. It's a farming and agricultural metaphor, and, he, and, he, and the principle that he starts with in verse 7 is actually very basic, right? If you've got a field and you want to grow wheat in that field, you must go through the field and sow seeds for wheat. So whatever you sow in that field, that you will also reap from that field at a later time, right? A farmer's whole livelihood and a whole society's ability to feed itself is dependent on this concept, right? Paul is making the same point for us as we grow in Christ. Our spiritual maturity is dependent on this concept of sowing and reaping. Now, what is Paul talking about here when he's talking about sowing? Sowing seed in a field, as we know, as we just think about what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple, a very repetitious act that can oftentimes feel very insignificant while you're doing it, if you're just kind of considering throwing seeds out into a field. So a farmer's walking through the field, the big sack full of thousands and thousands of seeds, tiny little seeds, and he's just sort of grabbing handfuls and just kind of tossing them out onto the ground. That's it. It's a simple and seemingly insignificant thing that if not faithfully done and carried out, it's not gonna result in a crop and the farmer will starve and die. That's what happens. And the farmer does this knowing that every seed that is sown, that he throws out there, is reaped on a delay, right? He, he, he sows faithfully in season, knowing that he will reap a harvest at a much later time, at a later time in his life. So he's not throwing seeds out and then going to sleep and expecting to, to look out the window the next day and see a bunch of crops out there. That's not how it works. So he sows faithfully and he waits for it. He waits patiently for the, for the harvest to come. Now, what, is, what Paul is saying in this extended metaphor here is that your spiritual maturity, Christian, like a field, is cultivated over time through faithfully sowing seed seed. That's what your work, Christian, is in spiritual maturity. It's like the work of a farmer sowing seed faithfully. Spiritual maturity, as many of us painfully know, it it doesn't just come about at once. It won't just spring up in your life out of nowhere. It's not gonna fall from the sky into your lap. Seeds must be sown in order that we might reap all of the blessings of maturing as a child of God later. Now, what do we mean by sowing? Sewing, I just want to be very clear here. Sewing is something that everyone is doing every day, all the time. Is that clear enough for you? Sewing is something that you are doing every day, all the time. That's what sewing is. You are sewing right now. You sewed yesterday. You sewed all last week. You sewed all last year. That's what sewing is. It's thoughts, it's actions, it's words, it's choices, it's habits that sort of form. The picture of your life. Everything that we are doing is sowing seed. And seeds, we know, are such small, tiny, seemingly insignificant things. But what this principle that Paul is explaining to us shows us is that these tiny, seemingly insignificant seeds that we're talking about, that we're sowing over the course of our life, they eventually come to fruition, and usually in ways that we never expected or planned for. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, he says you live a certain way, you're going to reap that later. We sow thoughts, don't we? We sow ways of thinking. We eventually give ourselves over to certain patterns of thought that eventually overtake our minds and become our general attitudes. We sow actions or behaviors, and these things eventually become patterns and habits in our lives. And then we sow habits over time, and those habits eventually begin to form our desires and who we are becoming. The things you do, the choices that you make, the habits that you walk in, these are seeds that you're sowing, they are forming you. They're forming who you are becoming in your life. And Paul gives us two options, doesn't he, for sowing? There's only two options here. There is no third option. He says we're either, always, either sowing to the flesh or we're sowing to the spirit. Look again at verse 7 and 8 with me. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Two options. The the choices and the habits and the patterns that form your life, the seeds that you are sowing in your life, Paul says, they're either leading you into further and further corruption, or they are leading you into more and more abundant life in the Spirit, greater maturity, greater powers of discernment that we talked about. Those are your only two options for where we're all moving toward, Paul says. Now, listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this in, in his famous book, Mere Christianity. I love this quote. He says, every time you make a choice, okay, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing, either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. C.S. Lewis is just merely restating for us the very same principle that Paul gives us here in verse 8, isn't he? For one who sows to to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption— But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, what does it mean to sow to the flesh? Let's just break this down a little bit. What does it mean to sow to the flesh? I think the Bible gives us really two main ways that we sow to the flesh. Two types of seeds that we sow to the flesh. The first one may seem obvious, but it's sin. Sin. Sinning against God, breaking His commandments, is sowing to your flesh. So what we know about sin from Scripture is that Sin isn't just an offense to a holy God. Sin doesn't just hurt other people. It does those things. But sin, all sin, even sin that seems inconsequential, in a, in a very real and observable way also hurts you. It dehumanizes you. It disintegrates the image of God in you. When you look at pornography, it affects the way that you now think. It affects the way you interact socially. It affects the way you engage in relationships now. When you are loving money and you're greedy and materialistic, that leads you to miserable envy and anxiety and the joyless comparison of yourself to others now. You're scanning through Instagram making sure no one else's life is better than yours. This is what it does to us. When you're you're selfish and you only do the things that make you happy, that isolates you, doesn't it? From enjoying fulfilling relationships with other people now. When you give in to venting your anger and exploding in anger, it only fuels more anger, throws logs on the fire, and it makes you a miserable person. Even the secular world understands this concept to a certain extent, don't they? Your sin hurts you, friend. Whenever we sin, we're not just breaking God's law. We are sowing real seeds to the flesh that if planted and left to grow will eventually lead to our corruption. The second seed that we sow to the flesh is the seed of passivity. Passivity. So, just sort of sitting there in life, coasting through life passively. It means that you're inevitably sowing seeds to your flesh. So remember, Paul says that in sowing, we only have two options. Sowing to the flesh, sowing to the spirit. There is no... Third way. And so, if we are unintentionally just kind of drifting our way through life, always doing just whatever feels most right to us in the moment or whatever feels most urgent or pressing to us in the moment, just doing whatever's kind of right in front of us in life, never doing anything that makes us even feel slightly uncomfortable or anything that's difficult, we're sowing to the flesh and you will reap corruption from that. And this is where, after we may not experience this because we're a lot of young people in here, but this is where after years and years and years of this kind of living, this kind of sewing we're talking about, we turn around and we, we, we look back in an uncharacteristic moment of sobriety and wonder, how did I get here? How did I get here? I'm miserable. I'm lonely. I'm unfulfilled in life. I never intended for my life to look like this, and yet here I am. When we sow seeds of passive drifting, we reap corruption. So that's sowing to the flesh. Now, you may be sitting there hearing all this thinking, well, I guess I've I've blown it. I guess I've sowed too many seeds to the flesh, and now I'm just sitting here reaping corruption in my life. But here's the beauty of this principle. Hear this tonight. Here's the beauty of this. This is what I've been praying for all week for you guys. By God's grace, you can begin sowing seeds to the Spirit right now. That's what what you can begin doing right now. And and what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? What are we talking about? It means, again, making tiny decisions in your life to pursue growth, to pursue holiness, to pursue maturity. Tiny decisions that you make that eventually lead to life-changing habits. These are the things that you do out of faith, out of obedience to God, and the Spirit meets you there in those things with grace there to transform you into something else. Things like... Reading and studying your Bible? Are you regularly sowing to the Spirit in your life by taking in and learning and memorizing God's Word? Things like prayer, taking time in your daily rhythm to pray to God, recognizing His power and His authority in your life, worshiping for Him for who He is, laying before Him all the things that are on your heart and on your mind for yourself, for other people that you love, people that you want to see come to Christ, thanking Him for all the, the work that He's done in your life to save you from Satan, sin, and death. What else? Practicing the the various one another's that we find in Scripture all throughout the New Testament, right? Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another. These are all seeds that you can sow to the Spirit, but you can't do those things unless you are pursuing intentional life together with other believers. So join the church. Become a member here at Austin Life Church. Join a community group. Participate in a community group or a discipleship group and come show up especially when you don't feel like it. That's sowing to the Spirit. Attend worship services on Sunday. Sing to God with other believers and sit under preaching regularly. Show up, especially when you don't feel like it. Sowing to the Spirit. What else? Deciding to be generous with your money, with your stuff. Confessing sins that you've been holding on to that no one knows about, confessing those to another believer in Christ forgiving and blessing and praying for people who've wronged you so you're not holding on to bitterness. I could go on and on, right? We could thumb through the Bible and just pick anything, anything that you do out of faith and obedience to God. These are just a few examples that I pulled out of practices that God has given us to grow by His grace. These are the seeds that you can sow right now in the Spirit that will cause you to reap maturity in your life. And as you begin to sow these tiny seeds faithfully, you begin to reap habits. And as you begin to sow habits over time, you begin to reap greater and greater love for Jesus and greater and greater powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. And in verse nine, Galatians six, Paul gives us this incredible promise that when we believe it and when you really trust what it's saying, it will help you, it will help you in this to stay faithful in your life of sowing. Look at verse nine with me. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Where does the power to do this come from? Where does the strength and the ability to continue to sow to the spirit in all these ways that we just talked about come from? It certainly doesn't come from the flesh, right? We know there's nothing good in us that can cause us to grow and mature like this. It comes from faith and the gracious promises of God. Every commandment that our father gives us as his children, it's attached to a promise. It's, a, it's an invitation from our father to sow life-giving seed. He's not a drill sergeant trying to train up spiritual marines. He's a good father, like my dad. He gives commandments to his children that carry with them great and glorious promises for life and for blessing. If you are a child of God tonight, God has put his spirit in you to cause you to walk in his ways. That's what Ezekiel tells us about the coming new covenant. He says, he's going to put my spirit in you to cause you to walk according to my ways. But hear this, what the spirit does in causing us and enabling us to grow and mature is he gives us seeds infinite seeds, miraculous seeds that when they get planted in faith, they grow into something new and glorious. This is a work of God's decisive grace in us, and it comes to us through trusting and acting on his great promises to lift us up and cause us to reflect his glory in maturity. So, Christian, as we close tonight, my time with you is up. If you love Jesus, If you have the Spirit and you want to mature, sow generous seed. Sow generously. And as Paul says here in verse 9, do not give up on sowing. I know it can seem like nothing is happening. I I know that it can seem at times like you're just kind of spinning your wheels in the Christian life and you have no idea what's going on or where you're going. I know some of you feel like, well, you know, I've I've regressed so much, I've reaped so much corruption in my life, I don't think I can can be able to get out of this rut that I'm in, spiritually. Sow seeds to the Spirit, and, and God's gracious promise to you is this. In due season, you will reap maturity if you do not give up on sowing. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, you have poured out your Holy Spirit on us, your children, so that we can call out to you in faith. You've given us commandments, Lord, good seeds to, to walk in, to plant in faith, so that they might sprout up and, and grow and produce fruit in our life. Oh God, I know that there are people in this room that feel the weight of this in their life, that maybe they've blown it, Maybe they've reaped so much corruption in their life that they they don't know if they can continue on. They don't know if they can keep on sowing. Lord, I pray that you would give them just great faith right now to trust your word, to trust that the Spirit is leading them into maturity. Lord, would you give them that confidence in their great Father's work and our Father's word. Lord, give us faith in your promises so that we could sow generous seed and so that Austin Life Church could be like a glorious fruit tree planted here in Austin that produces 30, 60, and 100 fold, Lord. The people here would would just be such a life-giving people who are mature and walking in you and sowing generous seed, reaping in season. God, give them endurance to do this and help them, Lord, to believe your gracious promises when they feel like they can't go on. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your grace. that You never let us go. And the assurance that we have that we will one day stand with you in glory, Jesus. And we pray in in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.